And uh, remember, we're kind of shifting gears in uh, the rest of this year and how we are uh, approaching the pulpit. And we'll be in, this is the second week of eight that we'll spend in the book of Acts. And the title of this series is the next chapter, right? How the, the, uh, the apostles, disciples, and the early church sprung out of what Jesus did upon the cross and in the empty tomb and in his ascension. And last week we talked about the reception of the Holy Spirit, the power of Pentecost that now overlaps and flows into the life of Jesus. And now we see throughout the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit fuels every single stage of growth, every single season, even the seasons of persecution are marked by the Spirit's presence and the Spirit's power. So that Jesus' ascension, in essence, opens the floodgates of the Holy Spirit coming upon His church. But the Holy Spirit coming upon His church is not something that we should look for today in the sense that we are not going to experience a Pentecost today. But we will continue to experience the power of the Spirit amongst the people of God. And what I want to talk talk to you this morning about is servants who lead or the necessity of leadership. But that Christian leadership, spiritual leadership is of a peculiar quality. It's a distinct sort of leadership. But too often in the church today, I'm going to read, I'm going to do everything in a second. But uh, too often in the church today, in Christian circles and spiritual Leadership, we look to the world to tell us how to lead rather than Christ and His Word. And if you have paid attention to any sorts of, I don't know, the last few years, or maybe even since the days of Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, uh, you have learned of pastors who either abuse their position or because of lack of accountability fail to lead their church well. So they fall into sexual scandals or they fall into abuse of pastoral, spiritual abuse. I'm listening to a podcast right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And that's a was a giant mega church with like 15 campuses. I don't know what it had. A bunch of campuses out in the Northwest. And it basically fell apart in 2014 because of the singular man who is the pastor, the founding pastor, and issues of spiritual abuse. I've even read it this week of churches that I know of where pastors and elders are resigning because of being heavy-handed and creating a toxic atmosphere. And I think part of the problem here is that we've looked at how to manage a church how to lead a church, how to administer a church, how to pastor and shepherd a church. We've looked to the world. We've looked to the realm of CEOs and corporate empires to tell us how to manage God's people, how to shepherd as shepherds. And what inevitably happens is that we lead in a way that is very distinct from the way we learn in Jesus. So would you stand as I read Acts chapter 6. Verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, 
full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenes and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for this morning and for your word. What a treasure we hold within our grasp to have the word of God in our language that we might hear you speak therein. For your word is God breathed, given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is profitable for your purposes. And we ask that God, now that you would give us grace to receive your word in faith, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, soften our hearts, O God, for we need your touch. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So speak, O Lord, to us. Please speak. Father, your children are listening. Have mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Acts chapter 6 recounts a very peculiar, a very different uh, instance, and we need some definitions behind our terms. There are two groups of people that are mentioned in the very beginning of this chapter that have an issue. There are, as the ESV translates it, there are Hellenists and there are Hebrews. There are Hellenist widows and there are Hebrew widows. And what we know from other places in the New Testament, that one of the very first things, and earlier in the book of Acts, one of the first things that the early church did was to organize itself to take care of those most vulnerable uh, in the the first century, namely widows, also orphans. And and this actually shows up in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled as this, that you look after widows and orphans. And keep yourself unstained from the world. That this is the the statement of how we ought to look after the vulnerable. But what's happening here with the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Is that the Hellenists are Greek speaking Jews that are from the diaspora. Now the diaspora are those that were spread amongst the nations through various exiles and through moving. But they were Jews that ended up everywhere except for Jerusalem and Israel. And what happened here is that they've pilgrimage, right? These are some of the same ones who were around for Pentecost. They had pilgrimaged to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And many of them, and later in age, they had moved to Jerusalem to live out their golden years. This was their retirement plan to move close to the worshiping center of God's people. But they were linguistically, in terms of the language that they spoke, Greek and They were culturally Greek, that there was a language and a cultural barrier, a language and a cultural difference 
between the Hellenists, these Greek-speaking Jews who became Christians, these are Christians, and the Hebrews. These would be those who uh, were linguistically and culturally Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic, and they were within the cultural, cultural orbit of Jerusalem, so their manners were Hebrew. Um, Hebrew. Well, whereas the other ones, they were either in some, some of these Greek cities or Roman cities, and they were, they were notably not Jewish. And so there's already this very, very early in the life of the church, there is a difference between a two different cultural people. Now, we're not talking about ethnicities necessarily here, but these are cultural linguistic divisions. And what we need to see is that the cultural issue that arose that caused one group, the Hebrew widows, to be taken care of and another group to be overlooked. It was a combination of poor administration and a language cultural difference. So that this whole group of people, they were being overlooked and what's the daily distribution. If you were to read back in chapters 4 and 5, you would see that the apostles were receiving money. People were selling all their possessions and giving it to the apostles so that then they could go and take care of those who were in need. And part of that would be providing daily distribution of food for the widows. But because of poor administration and this cultural divide, a whole group of women was being overlooked very at the very heart of the church. This is the problem at the very beginning of Acts chapter 6. These two different kinds of widows and the Hellenists were being neglected. They were being neglected. And so the, the problems that arise from this neglect are threefold. Here are the three problems. There's harm being done to those who are vulnerable. This is not the pure and undefiled religion of James, but that the early church is actually dropping the ball, among whom would have been James. So maybe he's writing, remembering this event. That they're harming the vulnerable, those who are easily, easily overlooked. No one's intentionally saying we're not going to serve them. It's an accidental failure to serve them, but it's a harm to the vulnerable And because of this neglect that's happening amongst Christians, division comes into the church. And what I want you to see is that there's a compounding nature from this failure, this neglect of the the Greek-speaking widows. It leads to division so that now the Hellenists are complaining against the Hebrews. There's one group accusing another group and the other group's defending itself. So there's harm to the vulnerable, there's division within the church or within the congregation, and then finally, this division leads to a distraction from the priority of the apostles' ministry, namely, preaching the word and prayer. It led to a dropping of the ball for the mission of God. And so you see how what might seem like a grain of sand issue in the life of the church, can grow into a church completely dropping the ball and failing at the mission that Christ has given to it. So that when we think about the care of the vulnerable, looking after those who are needy, and the mission that God has given to us, 
One failure at one can lead to failure at the other, and neither can be neglected. Both are intertwined in this text. They're intertwined throughout the New Testament. So what's the resolution? How do we fix this? Well, the 12 apostles summoned the full number of disciples. They had a business meeting, a members meeting. They have some way of knowing who are the disciples and who are not the disciples, right? That this isn't just the 12. It's the 12 summoning the full congregation of the Christians in Jerusalem and saying, here's our idea. We cannot give up the mission. We cannot give up this prioritized mission that the Lord Jesus has given to us to preach the gospel to the nations. We can't drop that ball. But obviously, because we are doing this so much that these other things are falling through the cracks. Very important ministry of taking care of people. It says it's not right. Verse 2, it's not right for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They're not denigrating service. But in fact, both the apostles preaching and these men who are chosen in a bit who are proto-deacons. That these first deacons, they're both servants. They serve in different ways according to different giftings and different offices, but they both serve. That the mark of their, their work among the church, even the apostles who hold an authority that no one in the church holds today. I don't hold the authority that the apostles hold, even though I'm a pastor, right? Those big A apostles, that day has gone. We, we are not receiving any new special revelation that needs to be written down in the Bible. I don't wield that authority. It's an easy link to make. But even they, Matthew and John and James... Bartholomew, all those guys, that they are there serving, that bringing the word of God to God's people and bringing the word of God to those who have not yet heard is a ministry. Verse four, the word ministry there is the same word. It's a service. It's a servant ministry, opening up the word of God and preaching the word of God day in or week in or week out. I would love for it to be day in and day out. Um, is, is a service. But when this becomes a platform to platform a preacher or an individual ministry, then we're losing the essence of the service of preaching. Their proposal to the congregation is that they wouldn't give up preaching, but that the congregation would pick out Men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. So mature spirit and dwelt followers of Jesus would take up the slack so that these things are not dropped. Because otherwise the apostles are going to have to take their hands off of the plow that the Lord Jesus had given them. You understand what I'm saying with a plow? You preach the word, you pray for the people, you minister the word of God to them, you look after their spiritual needs. That is the plow that the Lord Jesus had given to the apostles. But in order to handle everything that was happening and the divisions that were arising amongst the church in a fallen world, they were having to let go of the plow and pick up other implements to do the work. And that meant that plow remained idle for too long. 
the word of God and prayer. And so they say, pick out these guys and we'll appoint them. So the congregation nominates, which is very similar to how we get deacons, right? They would nominate and then the, these apostles would appoint them. Later on, we see them basically ordaining them in verse 6. But here's the, the main idea I want you to see. That this passage is the, the beginning of this proto-deacons. This is the beginning of a, a diaconate ministry amongst the early church. But we see the nature of spiritual leadership is servants. A servant-heartedness is necessary to lead amongst God's people in Jesus' church. A servant-heartedness. And in fact, there is no Christ-like leadership that is not servant-hearted. You cannot be claim to be a Christ-like leader. Now, understand me, all of you lead in one capacity or another. It looks differently. You lead and you influence and you impact people around you. But if we do not have servant-heartedness, then we cannot claim Christ-likeness. One passage that has rung in my head for the last few weeks, but this week especially, is Matthew 20, 25 through 28. And Jesus is answering a request. This is such a brutal passage. Uh, James and John's mom come, comes to Jesus and says, Would you give my boys the good seats at the table? Make one of them sit at the, your right hand, one of them sit at your left hand, and it's, you know, it's just painful to think about your mama's coming. These are grown men going to Jesus saying, would you give them a good seat? Make, make them a big deal. There's something, anyways, there's something to chase there. I'm not going to chase it right now. But Jesus, after kind of working, talking to them back and forth, he comes to his disciples and he says, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. There is no Christ-like leadership without servant-heartedness. Why? Verse 27. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Verse 28. Even as... The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. If we're going to have Christ-like leadership, we have to have Christ-like servant-heartedness. And Jesus is the one who left heaven's glories. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here is not only the effective means of our salvation in the Lord Jesus, but we have the model and template of how we ought to go about exercising the influence that the Lord has given to us. Whether you're a pastor or whether you're a deacon, whether you're a Sunday school leader or a community group leader, whether you're a husband or a mother or a child with younger siblings, whether you're a teacher or a bank manager, that you have a level of influence. And how you manage that is a reflection of either 
a Christ-like servant-heartedness or some other form of leadership that at the end of it looks very much like the world that would want to lord it over other people. But servants who lead, which these seven men were, servants who lead, now we're going to see those, those three problems are solved in Christ-like servant-hearted leadership. Servants who lead, protect and provide for the vulnerable, and you have an outline there in the bulletin probably, if you want to follow along. They protect and provide for the vulnerable, they unify the church, and they enable and extend the mission. I'm not going to spend, spend an extended amount of time on all that, on all, each point, but I want to point us to a few things along the way. So first of all, servants who lead. Now, I'm not talking about leaders who serve. Right? Servants, that is a fundamental identity that you have as a follower of Jesus Christ. That we are a family of servant missionaries. That if you would follow Jesus, you must take the posture of a servant. Wherever you are, whether you're exercising leadership or not, that we are servants in this world. Jesus came to his disciples as the one with a basin of water and a towel around his waist to wash their grimy, nasty sandal feet. He came scrubbing bunions. And some of us can't pick up our paper after church. Sorry, it's a little jab. But we, we, we find that we can't, if we don't have the, the recognition that we need, if we don't get the acclaim that we want, that we have to have a fundamental identity as a servant. Jesus came into this world not to be served. He didn't come as a Alexander the Great with a throne being carried on four posts through the streets of Jerusalem. He came at his triumphal entry riding on a colt, on a donkey, humbly taking the posture of a servant, but servants who lead, protect, and provide for, for the vulnerable. See, when you're position of exercising your influence or exercising your leadership is about you and your fame and your acclaim, you're going to go to the influencers. You're going to want to impact those who are impactful. You're going to want to make a dent on people who who can make your name great or who can magnify your business or magnify your ministry. And what Jesus is showing us, one of the things that Jesus is showing us is that in order to be a servant-hearted, Christ-like leader is that we must take care of those who cannot give us anything in return. We look after the people who can't give us anything in return. And this is something I was talking to Sage this week about the sermon. And this strikes so much toward the heart of this church so often. So this is more, it's less admonition and it's more encouragement for what many of the things that you're already doing. Like yesterday I had the back to school giveaway and they gave away like 150 bags and there's new partnerships brewing that we might be able to serve and help other people in our community and other parts of our city. And that's taking the posture of a servant. Now don't get a big head about it, but that's exactly what we need to be. Those kids and those families who are coming, they can't offer us anything that this world would treasure. But they are precious and beautiful to our Heavenly Father. 
The same for the people who are coming through and they need a hot meal on Thursday nights. Some of them are elderly. Some of them are sick and some of them are just struggling. We're not asking for anything from them. We're just giving them in the name of Jesus. And that's a good and holy thing. So as I'm preaching here, help me to acknowledge that I'm not trying, I'm not whipping you. I want to encourage you. And I want that streak of our church life to blossom. It's like a river of life and there are oaks waiting to sprout up from that heart. That's the evidence of Jesus' grace in our midst. And I'm telling you that there's still more things that we could be doing. More bridges to be building. More healing that could flow from Jesus' presence among us. And that servants who lead protect and provide for the vulnerable. And so one of the questions to ask in that light is who are the weak? Who are the marginalized? Who are the oppressed? Who are the overlooked? Who are those who are most at risk within our community right now? And how might we be able to serve them in Jesus' name? There's a, that, and that, that's a whole banquet of answers. It's an overwhelming banquet of answers. If we just have, take one day and go interview, we could go interview the, uh, the folks at the schools, go interview the mayor, and over, oh, go interview the, uh, the chief of police, and I promise you, we will have a list just long. And the idea isn't that we're going to meet every need and make this the Garden of Eden. We can't do that. But we're going to protect and provide for those who are vulnerable, both in our church and we're going to do what we can do to see people outside of our church know the love of Jesus through servant hearted leadership and influence, protecting and providing. But there is a fundamental commitment among the apostles They're recognizing that their plow is to preach the word and to pray for the people. But they acknowledge that they must have a full-hearted commitment to looking out for the vulnerable. To looking out for the widows and looking out for the orphans and looking out. And that list we could kind of tag on in 2021. But we need to have that heart. Not just to make their lives better, but to glorify Jesus. Matthew 25, the what you've done to the least of these, you've done it unto me, Jesus says. And so you could apply that in our church in ways that I've just mentioned. You could apply that in your home. What does it look like? Husband, fathers, men. What does it look like for you to take that sort of posture for the people that are in your home? What does it look like for you to protect and provide? To provide shelter and provide emotional stability. And so much as you can, financial stability. What does it look like to you to, to shepherd your wives and to shepherd your children? Well, it looks like leading them to Jesus. It looks like doing the dishes every now and again. Or maybe every night. Maybe it means coming home and cooking dinner or vacuuming. Doing something instead of your wife who might be doing other things or who might be embattled and swallowed up with something that week. Protecting the, um, the vulnerable and the marginalized doesn't just mean that we, we protect people out there or we protect the sick and infirmed amongst us. But it means that we take, a, we take responsibility for the vo- those that the Lord has given to us. I have a responsibility as a husband for Sarah Beth. 
I'm not responsible for her trusting in the Lord Jesus. I'm not responsible for all of her decisions, but I am responsible for her in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Is there a greater call? Jesus died for his church. And husbands, that, that, that means that you don't, you're not, hey, I would take a bullet for my wife. Well, that's great. You'd be dead in the ground and she's languishing in poverty. What happens next? The call to die for your wife should be a, should be a daily one where you die to your selfishness so that you might live to Jesus. And there's few things more beautiful and impactful for the gospel than husbands taking responsibility for those in his care. Wives, you can do the same thing for your husbands and for your children, praying and bringing the word of God to bear, respecting and leading, leading from the posture of respect. There's so much to say how much this might impact our homes, just this principle alone. But could you imagine what it might do in the public square? What would it look like if this were the leadership spirit down, downtown? What would it look like if this was the leadership spirit at the White House or at the, the Capitol building? What would it look like if this were the leadership spirit at the Pentagon or somewhere? I, I dare say our political system would look revolutionarily different. Flip it 180 degrees and... That's what we'd be looking at. Rather than fighting for platforms and for notoriety and for uh, recognition, there would be a recognition that our politicians are namely public servants. They should be embodying a service heart set. Secondly, servants who lead unify. They unify the church. This is one of the most powerful ministries that your deacons are entrusted with. And let me say this, I'm bumping up on time, I know, Um, but I want to say this. Your deacons are tasked with a great load of things. The spectrum of responsibilities that they have been given by this church is too broad to actually be under the banner deacons. They really function as deacon elders, delders. They've been given a level of oversight and a level of responsibility. And so what I'm asking for, I'm, I'm really asking for two things. One, be patient and pray for them. Okay? If you need something, reach out to them. They are more than happy to pray with you and to serve you and to help you. But recognize that they have a whole host of other responsibilities too. So that means they, they might drop the ball one month or one quarter. They might not get in touch with you, but we're, we are intentionally working on that so that we know. And that's one thing that we're doing in, in September, that there will be a meet your deacon lunch or brunch or whatever after church where you can sit down at the table and you be here. We'll put you with your deacon. You can get FaceTime with them, get to know them, share your heart or just encourage them. And that's the first thing. But the second thing is that if we're going to let the deacons minister better, is that I think we could be well served by what the scriptures have as a plurality of pastors. Or, and I, if you were here a few years ago, I got into trouble here. And I'm, I'm ready again. Uh, is, is that in the New Testament, there are two offices. There is pastor, elder, overseer, all one office, and there are deacons. Look at Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. 
to the saints at, at Philippi, to the overseers and to the deacons. There's an S on overseers in that one city. More than one overseer in one church. I know I'm, I'm, I don't have time to let it like ruminate because we got to move on. But I want you to pray in that direction. I'm not giving you a proposal. I'm not going to say we have to do this. But I'm saying that the biblical model there is that you would be better served as followers of Jesus. And the mission that God has given us would be better served is if we made intentional progress to see a plurality, meaning more than one, more than two, preferably three to five elders who lead underneath the congregation. They would not supersede the congregation's choices, but that they would help lead and direct. Humbly submitted to the congregation. So they unify so that the, these proto-deacons serve as shock absorbers. They should be navigating. This is one of the things that your deacons do as they, they come to you, that they should be navigating conflict. Navigating. That's something we talk about in our meetings often. Well, so-and-so is disgruntled. And no, if you're going to make it to the meeting, if you want to get on the agenda, you got to put your name on it. We, I do not listen to they, them, there. Okay? They're upset. Them over there are upset. They said this. I don't know who those people are and I don't care. If you have something to say, you have to put your name on it. Otherwise, you are sowing discord and division in Jesus' church. But these guys who are there, they're, they're coming to serve and their service unifies. Okay, moving on. The lastly, because so there was a problem, the resolution was more servants who lead to fill in the gaps so that people are look at, looked after. And because of this, because some are chosen particularly for the position, and because there is a servant-hearted Christ-likeness, what happens with the mission? Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith, that the gospel of Jesus took greater ground. As people said, it's not about me. I mean, obviously, Stephen is incredibly gifted. He's, he's not long for the world because of that. But he's incredibly gifted. And yet he says, yes, I can come and serve tables. And then becomes the very first martyr of the Christian church. His testimony heard for centuries. But they enable, they enable the apostles to get back to their work. They enabled the apostles to get back to work. And so you can begin to see, because of what Stephen and his crew do, what happens in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9 is a result of that. Acts chapter 8, right? There's great persecution that comes after Stephen. But those who are persecuted, those who are scattered, what did they go about and do? They preached. They brought the gospel to Samaria. Of all places. And then the gospel went to an African who brought the gospel to Africa. That one of the first enclaves of the Christian community in the early church was in Africa. Blow our minds. And then in Acts chapter 9, what happens? 
His name rhymes with all. Paul, he's converted. He's met this great persecutor of the church, is met, and there are people in Damascus, which is Syria, who've heard the gospel, believed, and Paul comes and they lay his hand, lay hands on him, and he becomes a sort of untimely born apostle to the Gentiles. And all because of what happens in Acts chapter 6. If Acts chapter 6 goes a different way, humanly speaking, none of that happens because the church fractures irreparably. You understand what I'm saying? Because there are apostles who keep to the plow of the ministry of the word and prayer, and because there are these deacons who are serving the people and making sure their needs are met, the church is positioned by the Holy Spirit for great growth. And great expansion and great extension of the mission of God. So there isn't a disparity between the two. But there is a relationship between servants who lead. Who lead at home. And servants who lead to the nations. But there is no Christ-like leadership that is not servant-hearted. Because what did our Lord come to do? Remember... He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way that we embody the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when we come into the room, you come into the room as a servant. You come into the room of the church as a servant that you're offering. That's what you're doing this morning. You're offering up service to God in your praises. And as you receive the word of God, you step into your homes as servants. You step into your your Uh, workplaces, you step into IGA, that you're there because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And because you are one of the many, your call now is to showcase the servant heart and the servant work of your Lord Jesus by you coming into places not to be served, but to serve. Serve in your homes and you serve in your workplaces and you serve in your church, not for your glory, but for the glory of the God who has saved you in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would cause it to drive deep into our hearts, that you would help us live out the call to be servant-hearted leaders and influencers where you have placed us. I pray, God, as if there are some hearing me this morning, who have never trusted in you and maybe they're shocked that the king of glory would take the form of a servant that Jesus you came not to be served but you came to serve and you continue to serve lowly and broken sinners You served us at the cross and you served us at the empty tomb. It's not all that was happening there, but Lord, you came to serve. And right now you will serve as the savior of any who come up, come to you, of any and all who will call out to you. You will save everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You serve now. You serve as our priest who listens and prays for us right now, interceding. Would you cause the seeds of doubt to be dispelled? 
Would you cause the doubt of the adversary to be dispelled? At this seat of the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified, risen. That everyone who trusts in him can live. Would you cause some to believe and trust in you today? Would you encourage those who have been seeking themselves? Even though they claim you as Lord, they have not lived as servants, but they've lived as lords. Would you grant repentance even to your people? That we might be a people of servants who lead and influence. But God, have your way. We love you because we have been so loved in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.